Hello, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Sorry, I just managed to get one of the last remaining chocolate biscuits, so I'm going to really, really enjoy it. Um, <laughs> um, my name's Carmen Cruz. I'm one of the trustees here at Conway Hall. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome to this fabulous building. Um, it is my absolute honour to be here in front of you all today. Thank you for making it um, in quite inclement weather outside. Um, well done for making it in, because uh, we were sold out. So we've sold out really quickly for this event, so it's really nice that you're able to come along today. Um, so uh, I'll just go through a quick uh, couple of housekeeping bits. Uh, um, this is going to be recorded for a podcast. Um, we started podcasting these so that people who can't attend can still get some of the benefits of the many, many talks that go on in here. Um, so it's just for thinking on Sunday. These are recorded and then put on the website. So if there's anything you missed during the talk or your mind was elsewhere or you just want to share it with someone, um, you can find it on our website. Sid usually um, posts it a few days after the event. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, I would be remiss of my duties as a trustee if I didn't mention that you can become a member here for a mere £35 a year. That entitles you to free tickets for Thinking on Sunday, Thinking on Monday. Um, so if you have been paying £8 a time, you can really save money very quickly by becoming a member. It really is worth it. There was a discussion a few months ago about increasing the membership, but thankfully they decided not to. So we'd like to keep it as accessible as possible. Um, so yes, become a member, it's wonderful. And you can do that by visiting our website. Um, so I guess that's, oh, we've got next week's talk, but I'll come to that during the Q&A. The actual talk itself will be 45 minutes, and then we'll take a break for about 10 or 15 minutes, where you can help yourself to the complimentary tea and coffee outside, um, grab the chocolate biscuits while you can, um, and yeah, then we'll be back for about a 25-minute Q&A, um, hoping to wrap everything up by 4.30 this afternoon. And then I heartily encourage you all to go forth into the pub and carry on the discussion. I'm sure it's going to be really lively. Um, a quick note about the Q&A is that because there are quite a lot of you today, um, keep questions as short as possible and just um, allow other people... Oh, we have one already. It will be, yeah, yeah. Um, so no swearing, please. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess I should introduce our speaker. Uh, JJ Bowler is a writer, poet and educator. He is the author of the novel No Place to Call Home, as well as three poetry collections. He's one of the winners of the 2017 Spread the Word Flight 1000 Associates Prize. And copies of his book, Mask Off, Masculinity Redefined, will be available today just outside as you walked in. Um, you can pick them up for 9.99 today and uh, there will be signings in the interval and perhaps a bit of time afterwards as well. So well done to those of you who have got a copy already. You can be first in the queue to get it signed. Can you please give a lovely, warm Conway Hall welcome to our speaker, JJ Bowler. <laughs> Hello everyone, how are you? Good? You good? You sure? Yeah? Uh, the rain hasn't put you off, no. It almost put me off, to be honest. Um, but yeah, thank you very much uh, for having me. Um, um, my name is JJ Bola, I'm a writer and poet. I'm going to introduce myself um, the best way I know how, uh, with a poem, I guess, as poets do. Um, this, this poem was kind of like the inception to this journey of masculinity. I wrote it quite a few years ago, and it's called uh, Real Men. I was told to be a man, a real man. Apparently, that meant not to cry. That meant my eyes had to be like shutters. So when it came to emotions, my feelings were like a church monastery. I had none. I was told that to cry was to show weakness. And in this world, you have to be strong to survive. Walk with a mask on your face, a screw face, and never show what's going on inside from young. 
We were taught how to make guns out of fingers until we became old enough to shoot them. Guard your heart from the start. We danced bad to Michael Jackson thriller until we became real life smooth criminals conditioned by the media subliminal. This isn't human nature. It is indoctrination. Our voices were silenced, so we practiced violence on all platforms from PlayStation to Xbox to that boy Michael's face. See, we were never taught it was wrong because as a real man, anger is the only conditioned accepted response. Just think of how uncomfortable you get when you see a grown man cry. Think of the number of times your mother used to say, big boys don't cry. So it's no surprise to see that in society, men commit up to 90% of all violent crimes because we are always angry inside. So to be a real man is to live a lie. But I was told to be a... I was told to be a real man. So misogynistic words like bitches lingered in the tidbits of our tongues. We lived in concrete blocks with no gardens, but we'll still ask where the hoes at. Listen, bro, fact is, we were lied to. We were told that it's okay for a man to sleep with as many women as he wants, but we were never told about love, never told that love could heal the greatest pain like a needle to the vein is the drug that we need. I wish we could sell bags of love. Instead of crack or weed, just imagine the change that you would see. Crack addicts would just be people who are high on love, and crack babies would just be, pe would just be babies who were born with love, and rehab would be where the haters went. Listen, bro, fact is, we were lied to. Given negative images for us to aspire to, so to be a real man is just another lie too. So this goes out to all the men who are real because they have beaten hearts who aren't afraid to cry. Men whose emotions show it as clear as the moonlit sky. Men who write poetry in the middle of the night and read books and meet up at the coffee shop or the library to discuss bell hooks we will call men who can speak of love openly like an envelope open me and you will see what is written inside. Men who want love but not the kind that you make in the club, the kind that your ancestors once spoke of. It isn't a myth. Imagine roses of red written in hieroglyphs, owed to a naked beauty in meritic scripts, where Healy spoken word across the Serengeti, speaking about how the beauty of the sunrise over the horizon reminds us of the beauty in a woman's face when she smiles. Listen, bro, fact is, we were lied to, given negative images for us to aspire to. So why would you want to be a real man when you can be you? So be you. Do not be confined by society's ideals because real men don't exist, only men who are real. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, having written this book, it's been a really interesting journey. Um, I started writing it in 2017. Uh, it just kind of happened a bit randomly, but I've been researching the subject and just reading around it for a long time um, since I was a teenager. It really started with uh, Bell Hooks, uh, Will to Change, and We Rule Cool. Has anyone read those books? I'd highly recommend them. Oh, thank you. Um, shows how thirsty I am. I've already gone through the first couple of water. Um, and I read those when I was a teenager. You know, I grew up with four brothers, grew up in inner city London, very kind of like hyper-masculine uh, environment. But I was, you know, firstly, I'm a cancer. We are uh, famously known for being incredibly emotional, and I was one of those very emotional boys. I would cry all the time. I'd get into a fight and then cry because I hit someone. Like, that was <laughs> literally what I was going through. And so all those conflictions of... Um, masculinity kind of appeared before me quite early, but I didn't know, I didn't really know how to confront it, and I didn't know who I could talk to, so I, for me, I went into books, and it was reading books, non-fiction books, but also uh, literature, fiction, that allowed me to explore these issues and think about what my life would be like if, you know, as a man, I guess, but if I was born under a 
different identity under a different historical period. So, you know, I'm from Congo. I know that in pre-colonial Congo, um, the gender binary wasn't as strict as it is in, in modern Western society. I'll give you an example. Um, so, in my language, Lingala, we call the left hand Liboko Amwasi and the right hand Liboko Mubali, which essentially translates to the women's hand and the man's hand. And that was essentially a symbolic kind of representation that you are both masculine and feminine energy. So you had that balance, and that related to um, one of the early creation stories of the Congo Kingdom, that the first human being on, on, on the planet um, descending, descended from the, from the universe and essentially divided itself, was both man and woman, or masculine and feminine, and divided itself and, and populated the earth. And so I began to think about that. I began to think of, of how the gen, like gender fluidity was normal in those times. And then for me, as a boy growing up, curious, you know, that, like, I would try on my mom's heels. I mean, like, how does she walk on those? You know, but, <laughs> but like, obviously not in front of anyone, you know, um, because of the potential repercussions. And, and, I mean, there's obviously other men and other people who've gone through different um, like journeys in terms of their masculinity, perhaps those more extreme experiences. So I don't want to talk on behalf of anyone, or I don't want to say that my experience was the most challenging, um, but those are just little insights that kind of like came to me. And so when it came to this book, Mask Off, um, I really wanted to write a book that spoke to young people about issues that they don't necessarily get to, get to discuss, but that they're confronted with in their reality every single day, especially young people, you know, like teenagers nowadays with how they are exposed to social media, everything on their mobile phones, et cetera, and all of that, which is just so much more um, predominant than it was in my day, not that long ago. Um, and so I work with a group of young people. We ran a project called Boys Into Books, and what that project was, just selecting a group of young people at a secondary school in South London and we read certain um, texts, certain pieces of literature from different books and used that to discuss how they, like their perceptions of masculinity. And one of the issues that came up, one of the discussions that came up was, um, I don't know how relevant it will be amongst this crowd, but I don't want to make any assumptions, uh, was Love Island, right? <laughs> I don't know if, does anyone here watch Love Island? Yeah? Okay, good, good. See, I didn't want to make any assumptions. Um, and one of the things that all the boys were saying was like, oh, Love Island, I don't watch Love Island, sir. Oh, that's for girls, that's for girls. But they could name every person who was on Love Island. <laughs> so I was like, mm, do you really watch it? Or are you just scared to admit that what's going on? Um, and, and, and that's often what happened. Masculinity was a performance. And that's the same kind of journey that I went through and a lot of my peers went through, that there were in certain situations where we were performing to what the expectations were of masculinity but it wasn't our true nature. Um, I'll give an, an, another example as it relates to sex, particularly because uh, of how young boys are socialized, to, to socialized into sex and essentially uh, rape culture when, you know, I was quite a late bloomer, if you will, and um, I remember all my friends during their like, teenage years and stuff when they were all talking about girls and stuff and whatever. Um, 
I also like performed along and I was like, yeah, I did this with that girl. Had I even like held, held hands? Not really, <laughs> you know, but it's all of these performances and that's just one example, but it happens in so many ways. Um, I'll read an extract from the book just to, just to kind of highlight that. Uh, so this is masculinity as a performance. In the modern era, fierce debates are taking place around masculinity, femininity, and the gender binary itself, something we discuss uh, in chapter six. Some argue that masculinity is toxic, fragile, and in crisis, whilst others argue that increasing debates on it proves that masculinity is to be protected at all costs by those attempting to destroy it. Masculinity and femininity, as traditionally understood, are traits or characteristics that we exhibit on the basis of our sex, but it remains distinct from the definition of the male and female biological sex. Judith Butler argues that gender is an identity tenuously constructed in time through a stylized repetition of acts highlighting its performative nature. Whilst gender is not the same thing as masculinity and femininity, gender roles are largely tend uh, tended to fit into masculine and feminine roles. Many have argued that this idea of gender as a performative can be extended to masculinity and femininity, that we perform specific masculine and feminine roles and acts which continuously validate our sense of gender. For example, being strong makes us more of a man and being weak makes us uh, more woman. The many things that we are told about manhood and masculinity are actually dangerous to us as boys and men and to those who are close to us, including women, something that will be developed in further detail throughout the book. What are the examples then of how masculinity is different depending on location and culture in the world? We've already seen a bit an example of how in places like Nigeria, Uganda and India and Congo as well, that men hold hands as a sign of brotherhood, friendship and affection. Uh, question to the men, you may just want to put your hand up. Have you ever uh, walked around in London or just generally in the West holding hands in an, uh, with someone who's just a friend and not your partner? No one, right? Uh, neither have I. <laughs> and the thing is, for uh, I write about this as well. In my culture, that's very normal. I went to India in 2010 um, and we kind of made some friends, we was there for a bit of time, made some friends with some of the local people. And I remember we were sitting on a bus and I was chatting to one of the guys and you know, at this rate, like, we were cool, we were friends. And he put his hand on my lap and then he kind of like, cupped my hand as well. And we were holding hands. And like, in that moment, I felt like an explosion. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, I very much, my, my young inner city London boy almost like jumped out, you know, because I was, I was like faced with so many conflictions at that moment, but I actually I was like, no, I like this guy with friends and so forth. There's a bond here that's happening that like, I don't want to disrupt, you know. So we held hands. We was actually all going to the cinema as a group. Um, we held hands and then we got off the bus and there was another group of guys. And what was really interesting to see was, so they were all approaching us. And these were, I guess, what you would typically describe as masculine men. Um, so perhaps tall, athletic, etc. And they were in a group of about 10 and pretty much all walking down the, down the road, holding hands, some of them even pinkies intertwined. You know that's a true sign of friendship if, <laughs> if your pinkies are intertwined. And I was looking at that thinking, wow, like I could never imagine that happening in London. You know, and I mean, as much as I would absolutely love to see that happening in London, because I think uh, non-sexual intimacy is such an important thing that men don't often you know, get to experience. 
Um, but just the associations with it and the stigma attached to um, that, uh, I guess, visible um, presentation is, is essentially dangerous. You know, you can be attacked for it. And that just goes to show how almost like implicitly homophobic the society is as well, that as men, if you, even if you just show each other affection, that it's immediately sexualized. And I think about how, just how normalized male violence is relative to male love. That you can see, and this has happened to me several times, but I've been walking down the road and I've seen guys get into a fight and I will literally step around it as if it's normal. All right? that it, it doesn't shock me. Like if I see two guys get into argument, more often than not, I'll just be like, okay, how do I best like, get around that? I don't want to get involved. Nothing to do with me. But, and you know, generally society will respond in the same way. But if it's two men holding hands, like that catches my attention so much more. I think about their story in such a more complicated way. Like what's their situation? What's their you know, relationship there? Is it, is it friendship? Is it more? Like what is going on there? And I think about the conflictions and what that means for us as a society, that we are more comfortable with violence than we are with expressions of love, particularly um, with the male gender. And then if you look at that, and you look at the statistics of, of, of violence, that men essentially commit up to 90% of, of violent crimes within society. And that's not even, if it was 52-48, you'll understand my reference there, <laughs> then it could be contentious, you know. But it's 90%, so it's almost like without doubt that there's associations there that we really need to, uh, really need to challenge. And if we look at different places around the world, I'm not saying that there's a place in the world where masculinity is perfect and it's safe because as much as I talk about masculinity, we also have to talk about the power structure within which we understand masculinity. So even in India, where men are holding hands, India also has a ridiculously high uh, rate of sexual, uh, sexual violence and sexual crime, and so we need to an analyze that. But it's also actually a conversation about how masculinity relates to patriarchy and how the patriarchy essentially informs us of what is normal, what is normal behavior for men versus what is normal behavior uh, for women. I'll continue uh, the next part that I was gonna reference. Um, feminist writer and researcher, I'm gonna get her name wrong, I apologize. But also, I get, people get my name wrong all the time, so. <laughs> Uh, feminist writer and researcher Heidi Gottner Abendroth argues that matriarchal societies should not be seen as mirror images of patriarchal ones. They do not have patriarchy's hierarchical definition. Matriarchal societies are socially egalitarian, economically balanced, and politically based on census, census decisions and are democratic. They were created by women and founded on maternal values. There are still matrilineal societies around the world. For example, the Minangkabau ethnic group, the world's largest surviving matrilineal society in West Sumatra, Indonesia, where land and property is inherited through the daughters, the children take their father's name, and a man is considered a guest in his wife's home. It's a complex and distinct societal and political structure where women's agency is strengthened and empowered rather than suppressed as in many places elsewhere in the world. 
Today we are still caught up in the idea that the colour pink is for girls and blue is for boys, so it can be hard to imagine that makeup or high heels, this is my favourite part, when I tell men that makeup was essentially for men initially, they're like, whoa, bro, <laughs> what's going on? Um, so it can be hard to imagine that makeup or high heels, feminine things, were in some instances originally designed for men or that men or things that men enjoyed. Uh, during the early 17th century, high heels were brought to Europe from Persia and men typically wore high heels a display, as a display of their upper class status. The shoes were wealth, uh, the sh sorry, the shoes were expensive and so to wear it, it was to show that one had material wealth and financial status. Heels also made men look taller and more athletic. There is a famous portrait of King Louis XIV of France standing boldly in full-length tights, white shoes, with a thick brown heel of approximately three inches. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us agree, would agree that if we were all to take off, um, if all the men were to take off their uh, boots and to replace them with heels, society might look at you a little bit differently, right? And um, if I, as a boy, if I knew then what I know now, if I was trying on my mum's heels, I'm pretty sure if I had retorted to her that actually they were brought in from Persia and it was a symbol of status, so I'm just trying to boost my status as an eight-year-old mum, <laughs> maybe her perceptions of gender would be different. And it just goes to show how essentially masculinity is fluid and ever-changing across time, that the norms that we understand of what it means to be masculine or what it means to be a man is essentially dictated or controlled by what society puts forward and what people believe to be true. So we're now at a point where, I guess the phrase quite, is quite commonly said, masculinity is in crisis. You know, um, that men don't perform to their role of being a man. That there's obviously issues of um, violent crime, sexual abuse, etc., And also rates higher than ever of levels of male depression, of men taking their own lives. Right, so, and that, that conversation is often framed around masculinity being in crisis. And I think it's not so much in crisis, because for something to be in crisis, it would imply that it was functional in the first place, right? It's like if you're driving a car and it's perfectly fine, and then that red light comes on, like, you know there's an issue to, to, to sort out there. And, and sometimes you can ignore the red light and it's beeping and it's beeping and it's beeping and eventually other red lights will come on and then you're like, okay, I have to sort this out, I can't ignore it because eventually you know that the car's gonna break down, right? But before the red lights came on, it was, it was functional. But masculinity, I argue, was, has never really been functional in the first place. If you think of the number of wars that were created, the level of, levels of violent crimes that have been perpetuated against women throughout history for such a long time. It was never really a time that masculinity within a patriarchal construct, particularly a Western patriarchal construct, was never really a time where masculinity worked. And I think what we often do is we look at history through rose-tinted glasses and look and, and imagine it to be a better time because it was Identity then was more fixed and it was less complex. You know, everything was categorized a little bit easier. But now we're kind of moving to a more nuanced understanding of our own identity, whether it's masculine or whether it's, it relates to any other part of our identity, whether it's sex, race, class, etc. And we're understanding what 
I think is a really important issue in terms of like intersectionality. And that's where essentially your, the, the axes of your identity mix with one part of your identity or another. So I, for instance, am someone who identifies as a man, um, but I'm a black man from inner city London, right? So my experience with how I, I guess navigate through, well, how I navigate through the world would be different to how a white middle class man would navigate throughout the world. We're both someone who identifies as men and we both have male privilege, but it's a relative male privilege. And I would argue that I think really for us men, we have to understand that patriarchy doesn't benefit us. In fact, the, the biggest advocates for gender equality have, has, have been feminists. Like, there's never, I'm happy to be corrected on this, and I've done several research on it, but there's never been a bigger movement for male, male, I guess, self-determination and male healing than there has other than feminism. Like, I've never, I've not, I've done so much research on it. Even in case of, I'll give you an example of in America where it was only in the 1960s that rape in America, one man raping another man, was, uh, the law was changed for it to be considered a crime. Prior to that, it was not a crime. And I think, and that was led by the feminist movement. And so we often, and feminists, you know, feminism often gets posited as an anti-male movement. But I can't think, I mean, I'm really happy to, and I've spoken about this several times elsewhere, like even in the book I talk about it, I'm happy to be corrected. If someone can think of right now a male movement, a male-led movement that has led for the healing and self-determination of men that they can relieve themselves of the burden of violent expression and aggression and, you know, the burdens of how mental health impacts us. I, I can't name anything other than, other than feminism. And so I think it's really important for us to understand as men that the power, the supposed power and male privilege that comes from patriarchy doesn't actually benefit us. I'll give another example. Um, so I guess this is kind of more relative to perhaps the millennial generation. I don't know what generation that is, because also I only found out quite recently that I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yeah, these millennials, these millennials. And I, apparently, it's if uh, you're born between 1983 to 1990, uh, maybe seven, I think, or something like that. Um, and at first, I was like, oh, yeah, these millennials. And oh, yeah, go to these coffee shops. And I go to coffee shops all the time. Uh, <laughs> and they eat avocados, which I also love to eat. Um, and, and then I found out I, was, uh, I fitted within that category. Um, but what's also really interesting is that, I guess, like, 18 to 37 age group, there's more parity in terms of between men and women in terms of education, in terms of earning as well. And so what's happening is, and it's a conversation I have with a lot of my male friends, is well traditionally it's expected that the man has to be the provider, right? That you know you have to, well essentially you would out, well, out earn, and this is a very heteronormative uh, conversation, but I'm absolutely open to um, or uh, conversations in this regard, but I'm just speaking about this one spe specifically, that um, you, know, you have to be the provider, you have to out-earn your woman, et cetera, et cetera. But 
just in this economy, that's just, it's just not, it's just not possible. <laughs> like, it's just not possible. Um, and especially in London, you know, so, but I have conversations with my male friends and a lot of them are really uncomfortable with being with a partner who out-earns them. It makes, and they say it's because they, it makes them feel like less of a man. And I've seen a lot of men self-sabotage what could have been very healthy relationships because their partner out-earns them. And I think that's a really, really dangerous thing to, 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 to look at because if someone is your partner, like there's someone who loves you ideally and, you know, let's not get into the complications of <laughs> love at the moment. Some of you are already cynics and we're like, well, <laughs> I get it. I've been there. But ideally, someone who loves you and cares for you and you're building a bond and et cetera, working together. Uh, why would you allow your inner conflicts of being masculine, right, essentially destroy that? You know? And that's even before the relationship has developed. And we think about how this generation are moving forward and the next generation where ideally, in an ideal world, you know, that, that there's, even, there's going to be even more parity, is how do we essentially remove ourselves from those traditional masculine expectations and move and, and actually feel comfortable with transitioning into whatever the next kind of definition or expression of masculinity is. And I think for a lot of the conversations that I have with my male friends, they essentially, and I, had, I went through the same journey, so when I talk about it, I don't talk about it in the sense of something that is separate from my own understanding. Like, this is something that I also went through. I had to look at myself and think, okay, but you also you know, think about this or think about that in this particular way. Like, how do you remove yourself from that kind of thinking? Um, but a lot of my male friends that I speak to about, especially since this book has come out, um, hold on to the perceived traditional values of masculinity because it's what they know, but they're scared to let go of that because they don't know what is next. They don't know what you're stepping into, right? And it's like, how do we understand that there's more freedom in stepping into the unknown than there is in, in staying in a confined space that actually damages you? And we're seeing how masculinity damages us. And there's a lot of our kind of like generation who are now having children. And for example, there was a the Lewis Hamilton post and he posted a picture of his nephew wearing a dress and um, kind of like mocked him a little bit. And it's like, well, how do you have those conversations? How do you also have a conversation with a young boy um, uh, who wants to wear a dress and allow him the, 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 the freedom to do that, but also challenge your own inner conflicts about masculinity? And I think we're kind of like at a transitional phase, but no one really knows where it's going. But for me, I was like, you can't know where you're going unless you know essentially where you've been, you know, unless you know what's come, what's come before. And I don't like to have these conversations without um, talking about solutions. And I think solutions is really important because often, as I've said, conversation a lot has been about masculinity, masculinity being in crisis, uh, men breaking down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all good pointing that out but if there's no solutions if there's no like what can we do next you know what do what do men do amongst each other how do we have these conversations um and also women who are most impacted by patriarchy as much as it you know as much as it impacts us as men negatively the most impacted by it and almost most violently are, are women 
but amongst us as men, like how do we have these conversations? How, if you're speaking with your, your father, how do you openly, I don't know, like for me, I have a really complicated relationship with my father. We're now on very good terms. It was a bit rocky, um, but I feel more comfortable speaking with him about politics than I do about anything else. You know, politics is a very safe space. It's objective. It's almost like non-judgmental in a sense of like it not being personal. It relates to that whole masculine idea of like rationality and logic, right? But if I'm if I'm feeling down, if I'm feeling unfulfilled, I I don't know. Last I can't have that conversation with my father. I don't know how many men can. And whenever I see, I have certain friends who have that close relationship with their father, who tell their father um, about you know breakups and all of that. I mean, that's that's just amazing to me. And I really want that kind of relationship for all of us, but not just as it relates to our fathers or the patriarchs in our life, but also to each other. And even there's so many men who, amongst their male friendship groups, don't feel comfortable having those profoundly intimate discussions, but they're the group of guys that they spend the most time with. Now imagine the people that you spend the most time with, you can't be yourself around them. So what do you then go and do? You bottle it up all inside, right? And this whole idea of like repression, repression, eventually it leads to, it leads to violent, violent outbursts. Um, so in the book as well, I also try to offer um, some solutions in the conclusion. So this is in the chapter, Transgression and Transformation. Because I really think when it comes to masculinity and being a man is whilst you go through this period of transformation, it's also really important to recognize what kind of views you held or behaviors you normalized previously and then remove that from your own habits and don't pass that on. It's not just about reading the book and saying, oh, I've changed now. It's actually really like healing, having those conversations with people around you and essentially like repairing any damages that might have happened previously and then moving forward from that. One of the things that I really, really advocate for is um, I fundamentally believe that, and if I were supreme ruler of the universe, if I were like Thanos and I had all infinity stones, right, rather than like destroying half the universe, one of my things would be for every man in the entire universe to have a diary. I think that is so crucial and important, and from as young as possible as well. And what a diary just allows is, I started keeping a diary in my late teens. I didn't tell anyone. Now I tell people proudly. Um, I don't let them read it, though. But like, <laughs> I, I, I think it's really important because in this moment where that's kind of like transitional period where you don't really have anyone to talk to, Right, especially as a man, you don't really yet feel comfortable. Because after reading a book or maybe coming to a talk, I can't then expect you to go home straight away and then you know, pick up your boys and be like, oh my gosh, man, I love you, bro. Is it like, it's not, <laughs> that's just not how it works. You know, in the ideal world, brilliant. Everyone, everyone goes home and suddenly they're opened up. Yeah, perfect. But realistically, it's very difficult to do that. And so in that transition period, whilst you're you know, open, moving towards that uh, place of comfortability, highly recommend getting a diary. What a diary allows you to do is just to write down your innermost thoughts and feelings. Just to express. It seems very, very obvious, right? But also, think about how gendered diaries are. 
right? So from a young age even, um, if you have a, it's very much considered a feminine thing to do that girls were given the diary, boys didn't need your diary. And so think about how that essentially inhibits your emotional intelligence and your emotional processing. And so for a long time, there's no outlet. So I highly recommend, just, get, just write that down. Write down, like journal your week, whatever you've been going through, whatever you're feeling, et cetera, ups and downs, positives, negatives, whatever. Just write it all down. And then what happens is, over a course of time, that allows you to look back and reflect on, upon your own journey and to gain, to gain greater understanding, essentially, of who you are, of your own emotions, and also your own emotional growth. Because this idea of men being stoic and being almost like never changing and constantly the same, is something that damages us a lot. Um, so I'd highly recommend that if I was supreme reader of the universe. Well, another thing, I think that will, we're kind of coming down to the last, I guess, five minutes or so. Um, another thing that I would highly recommend is, so it is difficult to have these conversations around um, your kind of like male groups, but try to see if you can create safe spaces. So you might be the, the only guy in your friendship group who's perhaps a little bit more open-minded about these conversations, right? And the rest of your friends maybe a, a, at a different stage in the journey. Um, I had a friend who, so why, in, in around 2013, this happened completely accidental. Um, I bumped into a friend in Dalston. I go to the library in Dalston a lot. There's a cute little cafe there that I go to as a millennial. And um, <laughs> I randomly bumped into a friend and we found out, like, he goes to the same cafe often as well. And I didn't know. So we used to go to that cafe every Saturday morning around 11 or 12, just the two of us, and just meet up, chat about whatever. Eventually, kind of like word got out amongst our friendship group. And then eventually, there was about five guys. It just happened to be guys. It was kind of like coincidental. It wasn't exclusively guys, but it just kind of happened that way. And then over a course of about a year, it was maybe like, seven to ten of us on any given Saturday morning, we would come up, sometimes spend that whole afternoon like together talking about everything. Um, we would talk about sports, but we would also talk about breakups. We would talk about depression. We would talk about whatever it is that we were going through. And there was uh, one friend that I had who, we're still friends. Um, I say in past tense, nothing's happened. We're still friends. Um, but he, he was very much the kind of, I think we all have this type of friend who is very much like the stoic of the group, like always the person who's perhaps like the strongest in the group, that we all think that, oh, this person doesn't have any issues. And I, I used to think that about him as well, because he always had, he had a brilliant sense of humor, he was always laughing, always like positive and upbeat and stuff. And um, over the course of like the two years that we, all, we would all meet up, he then went away. Um, and about three months after, so he was living abroad, about three months after, he messaged me and we spoke and he said how he just wanted to thank me. He basically thanked me for kind of like facilitating everyone come to, coming together because that really helped him for a difficult point in his life. And myself, as one of his closest friends, like I had no idea that's what he was going through. And this is also like I'm one of his closest friends, but I'm also someone who writes about masculinity and is quite aware of like male emotions and bonding and all of this stuff. But I, I didn't know that's what he was going through. You know, so, and, and, and sometimes we expect people to just open up because they're our friends. But 
it's a really difficult thing to do. And so creating these spaces where people feel safe around your presence, where they can be themselves and just have conversations that essentially lead to healing and lead to growth is something that can have a real kind of transformation in a gradual way before we see big systematic changes. Now, obviously, I'm, like, the, ch the changes that I've made that I've suggested is a lot to do with like, personal changes. I'm not in a position where I don't have like, systematic power that I can influence certain things, right? But I think for anyone who might read this book or have this kind of conversation, it just makes us subtly aware of the relationships that we have with each other, particularly as men, the relationship that we have with each other and how what we do and what we say can influence the direction of someone's life in a way that we would not have otherwise known. Um, I think that brings us to roughly the 45 minute mark. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening and being attentive. Um, I think we're going to go on a break and then let's Q&A afterwards. Thank you. Hi, JJ. Thanks for the uh, talk. You give great hugs as well, by the way. <laughs> um, well, I actively seek out, try and seek out these conversations now, um, especially in the work they do as well. There's a few guys in here today. We work for a company called the Good Lad Initiative, so we work with young boys in schools having these conversations. But um, coming from a very oppressive and macho uh, area, um, area of the UK growing up, still find it very difficult to have this conversation with a lot of friends that actively repress it. So um, I could maybe expand on that. I mean, I, I work in, have men, men's groups as well, and we, we talk about how it's that the, the guys journey first for them to turn up to, to seek that space themselves. But I suppose the question would be, how do you, or do you have this conversation with people who, well, don't give you the space like, like today and actively repress it? Um, I think, yeah, in terms of like the journey, arriving, right, can be one of the most difficult, uh, especially for men. So you almost have to dupe men into arriving. <laughs> Don't know how ethical that is. But I mean it in, with the best, like, interest. In a sense, like, one of my things, I love basketball, right? Uh, um, play it recreationally and so forth. Um, but I know that when I want to have a, if my friend's going through a particularly challenging time, like rather than sitting down and say, okay, now talk to me, we'll go and play basketball, right? And I know that in that environment, that activity allows like a certain connection where a certain conversation will be brought up more comfortably, where they feel less on, under pressure or on the spotlight. But regardless of how they arrive, what's really, really interesting is eventually when men do open up, it's like, it's, it's a deluge, like it's a flood. You know, you're almost at the point of like, okay, bro. <laughs> uh, and I'll give an example of us. I did uh, a series, an online series with the Young Vic earlier this year. It's online on YouTube and stuff, which is a, uh, essentially, it was a kind of like panel discussion, a group of men, um, and men, gender fluid men as well, non-binary, etc. And having a conversation about masculinity. The show was about 20 minutes long, but we was there for the whole day. And I tell you, like, 
men did not want to leave. People were hugging. People, like, everyone had just met as well. They were hugging, they were talking about each other's relationships, feelings, breakdowns, all of these really profound conversations that were really difficult that apparently men can't have. You know, so I think that desire is there. It's just about breaking that initial barrier. And sometimes using an activity to break that initial barrier can be a good stepping stone to reach that place of like comfortability. And then eventually, you can just get to a stage where you can have that conversation. Um, I think that would be the best way that, at least I, from my experience, I would say to approach it. Thank you, JJ. I think a lot of the issues that we see today are because of society's norms and expectations of men and women. I guess thinking much more long term, I'd love to see a world where a lot of these things are far more gender neutral. And I wonder whether we should therefore think about how we talk about the solutions in a more gender neutral way and love your take on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, I mean, ultimately, my, I guess, position or wish is to dismantle or abolish like the gender binary constructs, you know, the, the dichotomy of like male or female, man or woman, masculine or feminine. And that, that does mean that we have to reflect in terms of how we use our language as well, and myself included. Like I'm having, like for these kind of talks, I don't position myself as someone who knows and I'm imparting, like I'm, I'm, I'm imparting, you know, some sacred wisdom and advice that I've gathered from the gods. Like, <laughs> like half the time, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm figuring stuff out as we learn, but I think it's very much a collective figuring stuff out. Like, it's a back and forth conversation that we understand each other and then use that. So one of the things that I'm really, like, conscious of is language, especially as a writer. Even if, for instance, it, it can be quite harmless, right? Um, when we did that, the, the Eight Club, the online series previously, at first I was just saying, guys, well, guys, what do you think about this? And then um, one of the participants on that show was non-binary. And then after, I went to, him, uh, went to them privately, apologies, see, there you go, correcting myself again, went to them privately and was just like, how do you feel about me saying guys? Because I was just like saying it because it's just so normal, it's common, right? Um, but I didn't mean for that to impose. And they were okay with it, um, but, and I think that was more so they didn't want to cause an issue rather than them being actually okay with it. So I stopped like kind of saying that. And I think it's just about being sensitive to everyone's experiences. Like there's seven billion people on the planet, you know, we're not all gonna be the same. So I think that's like a really important point that you make. And it relates to what I was saying earlier. Like I'm like, I'm very much on this journey as well. I'm very much confronting everything that I've been informed as normal, and I think we're all on that journey. And what I don't like is when, when, whether it's ideas or conversations, when people come at it at a point of expertise, like this isn't an exact science. You know, masculinity and identity is ever changing. And the way that we see it, we saw it yesterday, it's going to be different from the way that we see it today, different from the way that we see it tomorrow. So it's about how do we open up ourselves to allow that fluidity to manifest in our lives and have a positive impact uh, on each other. Thank you for your question, by the way. Um, yeah, I just was wondering if you felt that your 
views on masculinity and how it's evolving applies equally well to the non-heterosexual male population? Because it seem, seems like a lot of your examples have been very straight-centric. Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned that uh, earlier and in the book as well. Like I, one of the things for me is I, this book isn't uh, an all-encompassing book. It's not what I'm writing about. It's not uh, definitive. Like it's not a definitive outlook on masculinity. It's not the be-all and end-all. What I'm hoping is that a book like this will spark a particular conversation. Because I'm coming from a point of view where I'm a young black man from a working-class background, a young straight black man from a working-class background, and I'm writing about a particular experience as as that identity, as a refugee as well, as someone who's from Congo. But what I'm hoping is it will inspire other narratives, right? Um, where you will see writers from um, you know gender fluid backgrounds, non-binary backgrounds, talking about their views of, 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 of masculinity and how that impacts them. And one thing I'm very, very conscious of, as much as I also talk about um, LGBT rights and all of that, I, I don't want to ever speak on behalf of anyone else's experience. So I can only really talk about what I've been through and what it relates to my particular identity and give uh, profile voices that are speaking about their identity and also like make references to that, and which I do do um, in, in the book. So I absolutely understand like, the limitations of where I'm coming from. By no means like, am I trying to say that this is the beyond and end all. And I think it's beautiful that we have such a diverse range of like understandings coming forward uh, more than ever. Because I know that 10 years ago, like five, 10 years ago, when I was growing up, I didn't know any young black male writers who was writing from working class backgrounds who was writing about masculinity. You know, and now it's becoming more and more. So in the next 10 years, 20 years, we're gonna have more diverse voices, more uh, voices and, and stories that come from different experiences that allow us to have great understanding of who we are as human beings, hopefully. Um, hi. So, I, as you know, I do some work around um, this kind of thing with men and, and do workshops with men, and I do this with a friend of mine, James, who, um, one thing I've noticed is he gets a lot of attention from um, women who are normally doing this kind of work in workplaces who want him to come and speak at panels and things because it's like, oh, there's a man doing this work, great. And that's great, and I support him, and I appreciate that because also I'm quite lazy. But, um, you know, it's often that when men do this work, they're, you know, obviously given this amazing attention. We forget about all the women who've been talking about this for decades or whatever. Um, so I guess my question to you is about, is about accountability and, like, how do you see these men who are speaking out and uh, men who aren't, how do you see them being held accountable by women, uh, trans people in their lives? And, and how do you see that movement kind of developing? Because I think it's so important that men have spaces for other, with other men. And I think it's so important that men are the ones who are often talking to other men about this stuff because, frankly, they need to hear it from a man. Yeah. But it's also I mean, interesting to me to think about, like, okay, but... You know, like, yeah. how do you figure it out? Like, because our liberation is bound up together, and we need to think about that. So, just curious for your yeah. thoughts on that. So, it's a great point. And um, so, for my 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 kind of like philosophy is, you don't deserve a cookie for treating a human being as a human being. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, two-year-olds do that. So, and I really 
tread carefully with this because it's important for men to speak out about masculinity and patriarchy because essentially men uphold it. So it, it's up to men to do the work, um, but it's where men do the work that's important. And for me, this is why, like, for me, most of the work that I do is like um, with other men, amongst, like with boys and men, because I know that if men are 90% perpetrators of violent crimes, that, and I'm working with a group of 10 boys, right? The statistics just say that, you know, over their, the course of their lives, like, only one of them won't be violent. That's horrific, like, horrifying, that's terrible, you know? And I think, like, we as men, like, have to, there's, there's, this, there's definitely this problem of, like, oh, okay, you know, yes, I understand masculinity, and I'm a liberated man, and you go around in women's spaces, and you get all the praise, and it's very egoist, and very kind of like individualist in that sense, and I absolutely despise that, and that's something that like, I really challenge in this book as well. And I think no matter what kind of public um, platform some, like a man might have, they have a personal platform as well. So you have to look at what are they doing, like what are they like around their friends? You know, how do they treat the women friends in their lives? How do they treat the male friends in their lives? Like, do they allow them, you know, to, con like, do I come here on stage and, like, talk about this stuff? And then, you know, all my, all my mates are being misogynistic walking down the road, like, you know, street harassing women, and I just allow that. Like, that's absolutely wrong, you know? So I think it's, a, it's and now more than ever, you're seeing that not just in terms of, like, male uh, speakers, but just artists generally, right? It's like, how much do you actually embody what you're talking about, you know, are you, or are you just using it for personal gain? And I think, like, for me, I just don't get, like, being a writer doesn't pay well enough for me to use this as a personal gain. I just don't understand, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just don't understand why of all the things that you want to do for, if it's just purely out of ego. Like, it's really hard to write a book. Like, I hate writing, I tell people all the time. Like, I'd rather be doing way, I'd rather watch Netflix than write, right? do you know what I mean? But like, I think about how I grew up, I think about like, how much I needed like, something like this. How something like this would have saved 10 years of like, anxiety and just stress from my own life, right? If I had read a book like this or come across a, a, maybe like a men's group that I felt comfortable going to. And how something like this, a small conversation like this, will impact someone's son, cousin, nephew, etc., etc. but also will impact the women in their lives. Because if the men are healed, then the women don't need to worry as much as, about being a victim of male violence, etc., and that male aggression. And so just to kind of, and there was a, um, a question on social media, uh, on Twitter, that said, like, two women, what would you do um, if men didn't exist in the world? Right? They asked one for, for men as well, what would you do if women didn't exist in the world? And it, I won't even go into the answers because it was just, it was very, like, masculine and toxic, yeah. Um, but the women's answer was just like, go for a run in the park at night. You know, like walk down the canal, like, and not, like, worry, you know, and stuff like that. And that's something that, like, I generally, as men, like, we are not confronted with those same issues of safety, you know. And when we are, it's usually by other men. Like, we look at other men. Like, if I'm walking down the street at night, and it's late, and there's a woman behind me, I can't say I've ever felt intimidated. Like, do you know what I mean? I've, like, even if she's taller than me, bigger than me, I've just, I've just never, you know, and that's like part of the male privilege, you know. But 
And this is something I've, been hi I've become hyper aware of, is when I'm walking down the street at night and there's a woman in front of me, I'm like, okay, I need to slow down, okay, I'm waiting, move across the road, et cetera, et cetera, because I know already what they're thinking. And it's not like I don't take it personally. I understand that that's just like the nature of the, you know, the world that we, that we live in, unfortunately. And so I really think like this kind of talk is how, like what kind of work are you doing amongst other men? Because the work needs to be done amongst other men. You know, the feminist movement is brilliant. Like, and it's uniting women and bringing women together. But I think there really needs to be men who are conscious about other men's well-being, you know, and, and actually work towards removing the damages that you know, hyper-masculinity, toxic masculinity, et cetera, has had in our lives. And hopefully we go in that direction. Well, thanks for your question. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for everyone's questions. Thank you so much for speaking today. You can find more um, on jjbola.com uh, and by following JJ on Twitter and Instagram at JJ underscore Bola, B-O-L-A. Um, thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to be back on the 13th of October with our next talk in Praise of Walking with Shane O'Mara. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all for being here and for contributing to the Q&A and thank you once again to JJ. Thank you.